0: stuff going on there <clears throat> check out this lion man you know the kids are in service now kids you know what we do normally we talk about animals so <laughs> your secrets out uh, you know all about what we do in here but like to welcome all the kids in here and uh, it's great to have you get to hang out in big church with the adults so now the kids first hour did pretty good they were really quiet so let's see how good you guys can do Adults too. They were really good first service as well. So, well, I hope everybody's cozy. This is our first Sunday together where we are uh, not don't have the services of our children's building. So we'll have a few months of opportunity to see what the the Lord's going to do uh, do for us here. Uh, you know, no matter where we turn uh, these days, it seems like the involvement of government is front and center in the affairs of, of the news, right? I mean, everywhere we turn, they're talking about the economy and and what the president and Congress needs to do about it. In fact, I was at Fry's the other day and uh, there was a guy in the, the line and he asked the checkout guy, he said, so what do you think of Obama? Is he going to do it? You know, so there's words on the street, right? That's what the focus uh, is now, is what is the role of government in helping out fix our problems? And I bring this up because it reminded me of a friend of mine in college named Rama. He was a man from India, and he loved to debate, especially in political things. He was uh, had thought a lot about politics, and he liked to argue about it. And so one day, uh, he came up, and we were talking, and he said, Tim, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I've figured out the perfect form of government. So I said, uh, you know, yeah, well, what is that? And so he, he began to describe this elaborate system, a six-party system he had come up with and, and how each party represented different things and how there was this intricate set of checks and balances because he was, you know, really worried about, uh, corruption and he wanted to minimize that. And, you know, he went on and on with great passion about this thing and I, I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. So I said, hey Rama, you know, that's interesting, but that's not the most perfect form of government. Well, he took the bait. He goes, really? What kind is? I said, a benevolent dictatorship. He was stunned. He couldn't believe I would say something like that. What are you talking about? So it gave me the opportunity, you know, in his stunned silence, which he rarely uh, was quiet for a moment, I was able to then explain to him what I meant by that. That, you know, in the end, uh, we, we need somebody who is perfectly wise, perfectly just, who never commits evil, is perfectly kind and good and powerful. That's the only kind of government that's going to work because every government that we have that involves humans is going to have problems in it because every human heart is corrupt. And it gave me the opportunity to, you know, the gospel bomb was lit at that point, and I I went through with him and talked to him about there is going to come a man who will be the perfect ruler, who will be the perfect king, who will rule in justice and righteousness and peace, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and This was a message that was foreign to Rama. He had never heard this about Jesus before because, like most people, Rama had the impression that Jesus was some meek teacher who ended up with the following of people who attributed these mythological miracles. Uh, to him, but he was simply a man that was uh, only interested in spreading a message of of loving others, and he had no interest in ruling the world. That was the picture of Jesus that, that Rama had. And you know what? I think that's exactly the same image that Satan would want the world to have, that Jesus is not a man of authority, that he's not God in human flesh that demands our obedience. Satan wants the world to view Jesus as a pansy, as somebody that... Just please with people to be kind to others. I mean, why do you think Christmas is so popular in the world and Easter is not? Right? If we have a baby in a manger, he's very manageable. It's something that can be handled, but not a risen Lord. The world wants a wimpy Savior. They want somebody who they can take or leave. They want somebody who just says, come as you are, give whatever you feel like. They don't want someone they have to answer to. Not long ago, there was a popular line of T-shirts that had a lot of celebrities actually wore them. They had the phrase across the front: "Jesus is my homeboy." Any of you seen those? You know, again, the world wants to reduce him to our level. The world wants him to be our buddy and not our Lord. They want someone to hang out with, not someone to worship. Is that the Jesus of Scripture? Is he our homeboy? Is he our buddy? you show up we have to put his arm and slap him on. The, hey, how's it going, dude? Right? That's the picture that the world presents. You know, I I know many of you are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's book Chronicles of Narnia. We get a picture back here kind of reminds us of Aslan, right? He's the uh the symbol of Christ in the book and as Lucy, one of the young characters in the book, hears his name, she she asks Mr. Beaver, uh so he isn't safe. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Later he says of Aslan that he's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. And I think that's how Scripture represents the lion of Judah. And we're going to look at a psalm today, Psalm 2, which talks about Jesus and and shows him as he is not a tame lion. The world wants to domesticate and control him. And as we walk through this impressive psalm together, it's my prayer that you would capture its simple yet important message, and a message I think is probably central to all of Scripture, and that is, honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4.25 tells us that Psalm 2 was written by David, which would put it at some 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was on the earth. And David throughout this poem shows great literary skill. We see it move from stanza to stanza, from setting to setting, speaker to speaker. It happens in rapid succession. Its focus is on God's King, the Messiah. It's a, in essence, it's a God's song of the coronation of a king. And not just any king, but the king, the one and only king. The importance of this psalm is uh, underscored by the fact that in the New Testament, This psalm, Psalm 2, is referenced more than any other psalm. And in fact, it gives us a strong basis and a strong understanding of just who the Messiah, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, just who that really is. So listen as I read from Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify them. Speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In this psalm, David essentially, in these 12 verses, has painted the message of the Bible. All of history really is found here. We see in the first stanza the problem with humanity. In the second stanza, God's response to that problem. In the third stanza, His solution in the Messiah. And in the last stanza, we see a mandate, an offer of what humanity needs to do. And you'll see in your outline there, that's how I divided... Uh, this psalm, it follows very cleanly that way. The mutinous masses are seen in verses 1 to 3, followed by the mocking monarch in verses 4 through 6. Verses 7 through 9 talks about that magnificent Messiah. And finally, in the last stanza in verses 10 to 12, the merciful mandate. So let's look first at the mutinous masses in verses 1 to 3. David begins this psalm with two questions. He asks, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The subject of these questions is what? It's the pagan nations. It's the peoples around them. And he says that, asks, why are they in an uproar? That is, why are they restless? Why are they agitated? Why are they in a tumult? Or New King James says, why are they raging? Why do they rage against God? They also talk about the people conspiring together, devising a plot, coming up with something, a plan that's only going to end in failure, that's futile. And when David asks these questions, they're not questions seeking information. He knows the answer, but they're rhetorical. The importance is to see his tone here. It's a tone of of uh, unbelief. It's a tone of outrage, astonishment. He's incredulous about this. What would possess anybody to do this? What are these people thinking? David describes the leaders of the nations as taking a stand of defiance. They're taking counsel together. They're collaborating. They're conspiring. And then what David does here, which he does often in in this psalm, is he uses a poetic device, which I've mentioned before when I teach through the psalms because they're there often. It's, It's a device in Hebrew poetry that's called a chiasm. And what that is, is uh, basically uh, Hebrew poetry is usually in two lines that are parallel ideas usually. The fir- in a chiasm, the second line flips the word order compared to the first line. So being that it's just been Valentine's Day, I thought I would give you an example of that in English in order to, uh, to explain this, okay? My love I give to my bride, to my wife I offer my heart. She was here in first service. I told her, Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) I know it's a little cheesy, but... um, But do you see what I've done there, the second line? It's reversed, isn't it? The object is placed in front. Now, in Hebrew poetry, they'll do that in order to focus emphasis on the object. So here you can see the focus is my bride, my wife. The point of this poem is to draw emphasis to her. And that's what David does in the first two verses in this psalm. If we see there... He says in the first verse if we were to take the Hebrew and just literally translate it as the words and the word order that it appears in Hebrew it would be they are in an uproar the nations the peoples devise a vain thing. The second line he says they take a stand the kings of the earth and the dignitaries take counsel together. So you see what David's done there is he's drawing attention to the people. He's drawing an emphasis on those who are rebelling against God. He is doing that for a specific purpose. He's basically saying, look at what these people are doing. Can you believe these people? Can you believe these nations? This is incredible. What gall, what audacity. How could these dignitaries even be thinking of such a thing? So he's drawing our attention to the activity of the rebels, and the rebels in particular And it isn't the fact that the nations are standing in defiance against God that disturbs them as much as it is who they are standing in defiance against. That is, the Lord Himself and His Anointed One, His Messiah. These rebels are then directly quoted in verse 3 with this idea, let us tear their fetters apart, let us cast their cords away from us. See, these rebellious nations and peoples, they see the Lord and His authority as a chain, as a fetter, as a shackle. That's bound upon them. And they want nothing more than to, to break, it away, break away from that. They don't want to answer to their Creator. And hasn't this been the case ever since the fall? We have example after example of people raging against God, of trying to tear away His authority. Remember the Tower of Babel? They wanted to build that high into the heavens so that they would have a name, even a name above God's. Remember Pharaoh? Time after time, he refused to let the people go, refused God's command to free the slaves. Then there's the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, who, uh, as he was laying siege to Jerusalem in the time of King Hezekiah, he sent a messenger, and that messenger had this message that said, don't trust in God. He's not going to deliver you. Look at all these nations before me that I've defeated. Their gods were nothing. Your God's the same. He tried to confront God to his face and said, "I dare you! I can take these people out, and you can do nothing. To do. You have nothing to do about it." Nebuchadnezzar, same thing. He raged against God as he stood upon his palace and said, "Look at everything I did!" Right? Nebuchadnezzar himself denied God's sovereignty, and mankind raged even more furiously when God's Messiah entered this earth. You remember what Herod tried to do, King Herod? He killed all those. Young babies and toddlers just because he wanted to wipe out the Messiah. He wanted no competitor to his throne. Or what about the Israelites themselves and the Gentiles? Pilate, the time of Christ, they said, we don't want this man to reign over us. Crucify him. Get rid of him. And Pilate more than willingly complied. They all took counsel together against the Lord's anointed. Henry Smith said of this, what was their desire of him? To have his good goods? To take away his freedom? To bring the people to dislike him? No. What would they have then? His blood. Yes, they took counsel said Matthew to put him to death. And this raging has not stopped at the cross. It continues on. Diocletian in the 3rd century. His mission was to wipe out Christianity. He hated Jesus. And in fact, he had set up two pillars in Spain that were monuments, and he had on them an inscription. Part of that inscription, it said, Diocletian, for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. On the other pillar, it said, Diocletian, for having abolished the superstition of Christ. And even today, nations rage against God and His Messiah. Communist countries, Islamic countries... They want to stamp the name of Jesus Christ out. Right? Persecution continues to go on. People are still dying because of proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and living for Him. And America is not immune. America is taking a stand against God. Right? The many court decisions which have endorsed evolution as fact and creation as fiction. Abortion has been legalized for over 25 years now. Not, not long ago, the California Supreme Court essentially legalized gay marriage. Voluntary prayer has been banned from our schools. The Ten Commandments are being ripped out of public locations. The ACLU continues to submit lawsuits to, to ban the use of Christmas in public settings because it contains the word Christ in it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying here that you know we should force non-believers to pray in school or that the Ten Commandments have to be posted everywhere or that we have to have the right to be able to refer to Christmas. You know, those things don't save people. Only the gospel does. But all these are examples of the fact that our nation is sending a message to God. And that message is, go away. We want nothing to do with you. We don't want you or your son. Leave us alone. Our very country is raging against God. And these are just a few examples of the mutinous masses. And I need to take a moment here before moving on. I think it's easy for us to kind of look at uh, those who are rebelling against God and look down our noses at them, kind of say, you know what, I am so glad that I was smart enough to turn from my sins. You know, it's it's just amazing that I realized in and of myself that I needed to follow Jesus. You know what are those saps thinking who are rebelling against God? They're getting what they deserve. You know what? They they do deserve that, but so do you and I. We hated God. We wanted to tear his fetters away from us. I spent 20 years trying to do that. We came from those mutinous masses. And instead of looking down our noses at them, we need to understand God has graciously given amnesty to us. In His grace, He has saved you. It wasn't you that found Him. He found you. And we need not to be looking down at the raging nations. We need to be giving them the message of the gospel. We need to be proclaiming to them this great King that we're going to look at in more detail. And our response needs to be, we always need to be thanking God for rescuing us from a rebelliousness that we were in. We need to be thankful. And that message of salvation that we need to bring is all the more compelling as we look in the next stanza, because the next stanza shows us God's response to the mutinous masses. In this stanza, in verses 4 to 6, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. The focus is taken off of the mutinous mankind and onto the monarch, the king of the universe. And look at what it says in verse 4, God's response as he sees this rebellion going on. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. We see the same idea expressed in Psalm thirty-seven thirteen, where it says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. Wisdom, personified in Proverbs 1, says, Because I called you and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof, then I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your calamity comes, mock you when your dread comes. So Psalm 2 4. There's a picture here of God and supreme authority over the universe. And as he looks upon the rebellion and those conspiring against him, his response is initially laughing, mocking. Does that bother you a little bit? It's kind of disconcerting. Does that mean that God is chuckling at man's rebellion? Is this a funny joke to him? That's not the idea at all here. The idea is that any attempt on our part, on mankind's part, to tear away God's fetters, any attempt to rebel against Him is ludicrous. It's futile. It's like a man in a fishing boat. One day he decides that he's going to take on a battleship. So he rows out in front of the battleship and he starts waving his fishing pole violently against him to take it on. Kind of a silly picture, isn't it? That's exactly what it looks like to God when we say, we don't need you. We don't want you. Get away from us! Leave us alone! It's ludicrous. God's authority cannot be thwarted. God, our threats are nothing to Him. I mean, it's so ironic. You think about uh, Pharaoh um, uh, early on. He tried. He had all the male children in Israel killed, or in Egypt killed, because he wanted to wipe out the Israelites and their threat to his throne. And guess what God did? He has His very own daughter, Pharaoh's own daughter take in Moses and raise the man who would eventually overthrow Egypt. The Philistines, right? Remember when they took the ark of the covenant and then as a sign of their they, their authority, they, they put it in the temple of their god Dagon. Remember what happened there when the next morning they show up and the statue of Dagon's down on the ground, his head's chopped off, his hands are chopped off there in front of the ark. All right? It's that idea. God laughs when we seek to rebel and place ourselves above Him. Thomas Watson said, God laughs to see men's folly, to see poor weak clay strive with the almighty potter, but let the wicked remember that God is never more angry with them than when He laughs. And we see that in the next line, for it says, Then God speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His fury. David again uses a chiasm here to focus on God's anger. It says literally he speaks to them in his anger. In his fury, he terrifies them. Not only is rebellion against God futile, it puts you in a place you don't want to be. And that is subject to God's fury, to his anger. In verse 6, God tells us what it is that is going to strike terror in the hearts of those who've rebelled against him. He says there, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It says here he didn 't just establish any king, he says it 's my king i 've chosen him he 's the one that I want to be there, and he is the king of kings, the messiah, the anointed one in fact let 's look back a moment in verse two that that term anointed I skipped over it before, but anointed is the it comes from a word. In Hebrew, which has the idea of to pour out something, a liquid or an oil, and it was used to pour out on objects that were considered sacred or on people that were being consecrated for a specific task, especially kings. First Samuel 16, Samuel did that with David. He had a, a, a horn of oil that he poured upon David's head. It says he anointed David. The word anointed in verse 2 is the noun Mashiach. That's from which we get Messiah, or the Greek word is Christ. The New Testament describes that's the same as Messiah. God is saying here that he has established his king who is the anointed one, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. And we know that he's referring specifically to Christ here because of language that's given in the psalm and also the New Testament, the testimony of the New Testament. Because there are many who say, well, David's just talking about himself here. But he's not. If you look in the psalm, the psalm is talking about the world in scope. It's talking about how the whole world is in rebellion against God. It's talking about how the whole world is against His anointed one. And it talks at the end about taking refuge in Him. God would not use that kind of language for a human king. And especially David. David was never told he was going to rule the entire earth. He just defended the promised land. But he was promised that one would reign forever over the earth in his line. And that's who's being talked about here in the psalm. David is referring to the Messiah, the anointed one. The New Testament affirms that as well. Many places talks about this being the Messiah. In John 1.49, Nathanael, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Martha said to Jesus in John 11.27, I seven, "I've believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then Peter's famous declaration in Matthew sixteen sixteen, when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you notice how they connected the Messiah and Son of God in the same phrase? There's only one place in the entire Old Testament that does that, where the Messiah is in reference and spoken along of, alongside of the Son of God. And that's in Psalm 2. The people in Jesus' time recognized that the Messiah is the Son of God. Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus Christ. In addition, if we look in Acts, Peter quotes this psalm in specific reference to Jesus in Acts 4.25. Acts 13.33, Paul does the same thing. He mentions this psalm and it's in reference to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.5, same thing. Talks about Psalm 2.7 and attributes it to Jesus. It was clear to the New Testament writers that this psalm is talking about the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And going back to the psalm in verse 6, God says that he will establish his throne, establish his Messiah in Zion. Now, Zion was a, a city, was a part of the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, David had to defeat the Jebusites to take Jerusalem. Jerusalem did not become part of Israel until David took it. And the stronghold there, which was believed to be on the temple mount, was called Zion, Mount Zion. And it retained that name in the New Testament times and also to today, where Zion refers to, in general, Jerusalem, but more specifically, even the Temple Mount. And God says he's going to establish his king there. His king is going to rule from Jerusalem on the earth. Look at Zechariah 14, and you'll get more details on that. Now, if you think about it, why would God saying, I've installed my king upon Zion, why would that be a source of terror? Remember, he said he's going to terrify those who rebelled against him. And then he says that source of terror is going to be, I've put my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What is there to fear from one man? Why would that be something that should terrify them? We'll find out shortly. So, so far we've looked at, we've seen the mutinous masses in verses 1 to 3 and the mocking monarch in verses 4 to 6. The psalm continues in verses 7 through 9 where the magnificent Messiah bursts on the scene. Immediately we hear directly Him quoting and Him speaking. The Messiah says in verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And what's pictured here in verses 7 through 9 is a, it's a coronation ceremony that would happen in the ancient Near East. In those times as the king was, was receiving his throne, there would be a decree that would be proclaimed and that decree would contain rights and duties that the king would have and would talk about his authority. And in this coronation ceremony, the Lord says in his decree that this anointed one is actually his son. He declares the Messiah here to be his son. He says, today I have begotten you. Now, this introduces a little bit of a problem, though, because beget normally refers to giving birth to or to fathering or to give origin to. But if, if this anointed one here is Jesus Christ, how could it be that he's being given birth to? Is Jesus created? That was weak. Is Jesus created? No. <laughs> oh, if I affirm that, you should throw me out of here. No, he is not. He is not created, He's the Creator. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. Nothing has come into being apart from Him. Jesus did not become the Son of God when He entered this world. No, He was already the Son of God as He entered this world. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was already his Son before he was born. So then what does it mean here that Jesus is begotten? What is he talking about? Well, what he's focusing in on here is the Father's de- describing and emphasizing the relationship that he has with the Messiah. He's describing that relationship with, on this coronation day, he's making the announcement to everybody: "This king is my son." Another question is: Well, well, then when is today? Why does he say today? Was Christ not always the Son of God? Well, turn to Romans one one. Hopefully, I'll try to explain that. What exactly is he talking about today? Here, you need to remember: it's a coronation ceremony. That's the the wording here and. Verses seven through nine in Psalm two. Romans one. We'll start from verse one. Romans one one. Paul, bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What do we see there? There's a point in time when... Jesus is recognized as the Son of God, and that point in time is His resurrection. And again, that doesn't mean that His resurrection made Him the Son of God. He already was such. But the resurrection was the final stamp, the final crowning achievement, the final declaration that, yes, it is Him. It is Him. He is the Son of God. Look back at Acts 13 with me. Paul basically says the same thing in Acts 13, just a few chapters before. Acts 13, we'll start in verse 32. Paul says there, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to the Decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So when talking about the Lord Jesus and his resurrection, what does he quote? What does he refer to? Second Psalm. You are my son today, I begotten you. Again, making a connection between Christ's resurrection and the declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Christ's inauguration as the Son of God was fully realized at his resurrection. He was not then made the son, but that's when, again, he was officially recognized as such. And there's a little more here in this psalm, a little more that the New Testament unfolds for us. And we'll see that in Hebrews 1. So I'd like you to skip in the back of the Bible. Go to Hebrews. I'm going to exercise the pages of your Bibles this morning a little bit. Go to Hebrews 1. And we're going to see there, as he's talking about Jesus Christ, again, that this psalm has unfolded some deep and amazing truths about just who the Messiah is. Hebrews 1, I'll start in verse 3, and speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. You see, this man, this king, this Messiah, this anointed one is unlike any other human king that has ever lived even David. The declaration of Messiah as the Son of God in Psalm 2-7 is greatly significant because it indicates to us the Messiah's divine nature. This is a special king. And it is him, it is he, that God offers to rule the nations. He says, I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It is this king, the only king, that is going to rule the entire world. Despite the attempts of Caesar and Cyrus, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Hitler, Napoleon, and many, many others throughout all of history who have tried to take over the world, only one man's actually going to achieve it. And that is God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now in verse 9, this is where the terror begins. In verse 9, this is where God reveals just why the nations who are rebelling against him should be afraid. For he says there in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. We're back in Psalm 2. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You know what? In order for Jesus Christ to establish his reign as king over the entire earth, he's going to have to deal with his enemies. And he talks about here just how that is going to take place. God tells them that you're going to break the enemy nations with the rod of iron. You're going to shatter them like pottery. Now, some of your translations here may, instead of saying break, may use the word rule or shepherd. But really, it's the idea of break because of the parallel nature of these two lines. Smash is in the second part of that verse. The smashing of pottery. And that image of smashing pottery is, is not uncommon in the ancient Near East. In fact, often if a king came back from battle he would describe his victory over the other nation as a, I smashed them like pots, smashed them like earthenware. Or even in the Egyptian coronation ceremony, part of that ceremony when they would um, coronate a pharaoh is they would have clay pots that were placed before him. And on those clay pots were the names of the various nations around them. And as part of the ceremony, the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, would get up and use using his scepter, he would smash those pots of iron or pots of, Clay as a, as a symbolic gesture of his authority over those nations. The smashing of pottery is also used by God himself, indicating divine judgment. Jeremiah 19 is one such example where it says in verse one there, as Jeremiah is confronting the people for their idolatry, he writes, Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Just so will I break this people in this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. What's Jesus saying here in verse 9 of Psalm 2? He's saying that the same image is going to be of the world, that Jesus Christ himself is going to smash his enemies like a clay pot. It's a graphic image, but it's what Jesus is saying of himself. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, wait a minute, Tim, come on. Are you telling me that this sweet and compassionate and tender Jesus that I read about in my New Testament is going to be going around swinging an iron scepter and smashing people like clay pots? I mean, when he was on the earth before, he didn't do anything like that. I mean, didn't you see the Jesus film? Jesus did nothing like that. he didn't lift a finger to smash anybody, right? In fact, he was the one that was smashed, right? He was the one that was brutally beaten. He was the one that was tortured, his beard plucked out. He was the one that was nailed on a cross, and then even when Peter grabbed the sword and tried to defend Jesus with it, Jesus said, "Put that away so you're telling me this is the same one who's going to be smashing his enemies like pots." But friend, you need to remember, don't be confused with God's plan. Don't be confused with the way he is unfolding his plan to take back his creation. Yes, it's true. Jesus did not assert an iron fist when he came to this earth the first time. But you know what? He wished for it. Luke twelve forty nine. Jesus himself said, I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. It's a strong statement. Jesus said that. While he was here, he did wish for it. He's ready and willing to stamp out all rebellion, but make no mistake about it. But that was not his purpose in coming the first time. His purpose in coming the first time was to fulfill the will of his Father. His purpose in coming was to find the lost, to seek and save them, remember? His purpose in coming was to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven. It was to show the great compassion and love of God. That was in Christ's heart. It was to show His humility. It was to show what God was like. When He came the first time, He did come as Savior of the world. And now, He patiently waits. And He continues to call people into His kingdom. He continues to save. He continues to pour out His mercy and His kindness. But don't mistake His patience for tolerance of sin. Don't mistake it for the fact that His anger is diminishing. He's not calming down. He's not calming down. It's now that all rebels against God are are given a chance, we're given an offer. God's extended his hand. There's still hope for anybody who wishes to be at peace with the king. He offers amnesty. To us, his enemies. And it's to that end that this narrator speaks again in Psalm 2. In this last stanza, these last three verses, David says, hey, hey, it's not over. There's still hope. It's not ended. Yes, he will come in authority and judge and smash the nations. But that's not yet. That's not today. There's still a chance. Lay down your arms. Flee rebellion and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the offer that begins in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. David says, Now therefore, he's, he's now going to bring a call to action. Based on all that he said in the first nine verses, David saying, Now this is what you need to do. Any who have been rebelling against God, he says, Be wise. Be warned. Take action. God then gives his terms of surrender in verse 11. God then gives his offerings. He says, worship the Lord in reverence and rejoice with trembling. And though David penned these words over 3,000 years ago, he's speaking to anyone here who has not yet laid down your arms, who has not yet submitted to God. Jesus is still looking for those who are willing to seek forgiveness for their sins, who are willing to follow what David is telling you. And I need to remind you, too, that you know, we have this impression of rebellion as that shaking our fist against God, of people standing up and cursing God to His face or daring Him to do things. But rebellion comes in many forms. Rebellion can also be just simply ignoring God. Right? What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? You tell me. To love God. How? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Any time if we continually choose not to do that, that's rebelling against God. And that's what you can ask people when you're talking to them and say, I've been a good person. Do you continue to love God and do your best to seek to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because if you don't, you're rebelling against Him. Do you ignore Him? Do you spend time with Him? Do you love his people? Do you love his word? David here says to worship the Lord with reverence. The word there is literally serve. Serve God now. Stop serving yourself. Stop rebelling against God and rejecting him, but serve him. And rejoice with trembling. He wants that service not to be cowering in a corner, afraid to even stand. He wants the service to be in joy, to be joyful that God will give you the honor of being a servant of His. And we know more than that, right? The New Testament talks about us being adopted as sons. More than just a servant. And then David adds one more command in verse 12. To any who would wish to receive pardon from the king. This has, I think, the, been the focus of the psalm. It's moved us up to this point, to this very point. And like I said, I believe this really is the message the Bible has to each and every person who's ever lived. Its command is simply this, do homage to the son, or literally kiss the son. He uses the word kiss there, which is the same word that's used for when friends greeted one another. It's used in the Old Testament of, of greeting a relative, of, of even romantically, between spouses. It's used of those who would kiss their idols as a sign of worship and reverence. And given the focus of this psalm, which is to submit yourself to the king of the universe, to the Messiah, the Almighty One, the idea here is primarily the idea of doing homage, of showing respect, of giving him a kiss and honor. That was something that happened often in the ancient Near East. When you were to approach the throne, often the king would, would hold out his hand so that you would kiss it or kiss his signet ring, or some would actually kiss the king's feet, or even the bottom of the king's feet as an act of Showing honor to the king. We even had that in our European monarchs where you would kiss the king or kiss his hand as a sign of respect. But you know, as you think about this phrase, these two simple words in Hebrews, kiss the son, isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, not just in showing homage and honor, but it's a kiss of adoration, of Reconciliation. Jesus Christ allows for us to do that. You know, it, it is an honor and a great honor even for him to invite us into his presence, even to him, for him to say, come into my throne room. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus says, yes, approach my throne. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus extends his hand, if you will, and allows our lips to touch it. The Lord of the universe is calling us to kiss him. To kiss Him in adoration. And friends, Jesus will never pull away that hand. He will never reject the desire of one who would want to come to Him, to fall at His feet and to kiss Him. Jesus will never be repulsed by that. No matter what you've done, He offers you to kiss the Son and understand, though, that this is not just an external action that God's requiring. It's not a one-time act. It's not a token gesture that He's asking for here. No, it represents a lifelong commitment. It's the most sacred of acts and is meant to be forever. In fact, the Hebrew form of the verb here for to kiss has the idea of it's ongoing. It's to be continual. Keep on kissing the sun, And the Son demands loyalty. He fiercely demands that loyalty, and he deserves it. I mean, what would you think of a soldier who, as he was on the battlefield, was in communication with the enemy, giving away the strategy and giving away troop positions? Or what would you think of a husband who, while he expresses and, and expresses and verbally says his undying love for his wife at the same time, is committing adultery? What would you think of that? Yet many people who call themselves Christians have just such a loyalty to Jesus. They would fain kiss the Son, but at the same time they coddle sin and rebellion. You know what? Christ will have all of you or none of you. He will entertain no other lovers. Do not give Jesus Christ the kiss of Judas. Give him the kiss of honor, the kiss of adoration and affection and loyalty. That's what it means to kiss the sun. Verse 12, we're given the reason for that kiss. The poet says there, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Again, here we're confronted with the notion of Jesus Christ as a wrathful Messiah. It expresses here that he does have anger. Yes, he is savior of the world, but we need to realize and remember he's also the judge. He's the one who's going to judge humanity. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. We have to remember, Revelation 6, it's Jesus who unleashes the wrath of God at the end of the earth. Listen to Revelation 6, 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great men... And the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of the Lamb, the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're talking about Jesus there. They're running for their lives. Spurgeon said, Lest he be angry. And can he be angry? Is he not the Lamb of God? Can a lamb be angry? Did he not weep over sinners? Can he be angry? Did he not die for sinners? Can he be angry? He goes on to say, yes. And when he is angry, it is anger indeed. When he is angry, it is anger that none can match. Can you picture that dear face of his? those eyes that wept, those hands that bled? And can you believe that one day those eyes shall know no tears, but shall flash with lightning, that those hands shall show no mercy, but shall grasp a rod of iron and break the wicked into pieces like potter's vessels? Listen, Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is not our buddy. He's not some wimpy guy that needs friends. Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. He's the Almighty King. He's the great I Am. He is the Savior of mankind and its judge. He didn't start this war with Satan and sin in the world, but he's going to finish it. It's this, is this the Jesus that you present when you talk to people? When you present the gospel to them, do you also let them know you need to bow your knee to this man? You need to submit to his lordship You need to turn to Him and seek His forgiveness. He is your judge, not just your Savior. I mean, if we look at the testimony of the apostles in the book of Acts as they proclaim the gospel, that's exactly what they did. Paul the Apostle, when he was in Athens and he's proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles there, he said at the conclusion of his sermon, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Peter, the same thing. As he proclaims the gospel in Acts 10, he says, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Yes, you need to tell of Christ's compassion. Because it is great. You need to tell people of his love. It is wonderful. But you also need to tell them of his lordship. You also need to remind them and tell them he is The judge. He is the king. And when we only focus on the Lord Jesus as Savior as we're proclaiming the gospel to someone else, that sends a message to them. If we don't talk about his lordship, if we don't talk about the fact that we need to submit to him as Lord and Savior, people might get the impression that sin is okay. It doesn't matter. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10. You confess him as Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. Then he will be saved. At the beginning of the New Testament, we see a picture of Jesus. And it's one where he's vulnerable, he's helpless, he's a baby in a manger. And that, if anything, shows the amazing humility and compassion of God, doesn't it? That God would subject himself to that. But that's not how the New Testament ends. Turn to Revelation 19, where we'll see another picture of that same One who was born and laid in a feeding trough. We'll see another picture of that Jesus who, as he walked upon the earth, was full of compassion and mercy. This is how he's going to return. This is the last image that people will see on this earth of the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not know him. Revelation 19. Starting in verse 11. John writes, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Man, what a graphic picture. He pictures the rebellious nations here, the mutinous masses, as those that are grapes. And as he trods upon the great winepress of the wrath of God, it is those nations that they are being smashed. David reminds us in Psalm 2.12 that Christ's wrath, this wrath that he expresses here, may soon be kindled. The idea is that it could happen at any moment and it could quickly flare up. It's kind of like the picture of a, of a balloon being filled with water drop by drop. And as the balloon continues to be filled, it expands and expands and expands. At some point, it's going to pop. And that's the urgency of the message that David gives in verse 12. He says, kiss the sun. Do it now while there's still time because that balloon's going to pop at any moment. At any moment. Heed the poet's call here. Honor the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Him, if you do not have a relationship with Him, give Him your allegiance now. Don't wait any longer. If you don't know Christ, you will not meet a merciful Jesus at your death. You will meet one who will vent His fury upon you and smash you like a clay pot. That's sobering, but it's the truth. David says, be wise, be warned, Honor Him. I know this is a heavy psalm. It's a sobering passage. And I hope for those of you who know the Lord that in some ways it's been an encouragement because you think about it, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never, ever see this from God upon you. You will never experience His wrath. You will never experience His anger. Ever. Do you know why that is? Because the same one who has a rod of iron, who smashes the clay pots, who, who sets his wrath against the nations of the earth who rebel against him, that same one took that wrath upon himself so that you and I would never ever have to experience it. God is never angry with his children. Right? Isn't that what we've been seeing in the, the prodigal son? How is God depicted there? How does Jesus describe the father? As one with his arms open running to you. But as he runs to you, if you turn around and run the other way, he'll meet you on the other side. And at that point, his brow will be furrowed. At that point, his arms will not be open. But his king, his Messiah, will be yielding the rod of iron. Those of you who know him, I I hope this is an encouragement that we've been given such an amazing privilege That God Himself would forgive. Remember that lifelong commitment to Him. Keep kissing the Son. Keep treating Him with honor and respect and adoration and love and commitment and fidelity. His compassion, it is great. It is great. And that's exactly how David ends this psalm. The very last phrase ends on a note of hope. He says, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Right the the Bible's always that way. Yes it presents God's wrath it presents judgment but there's always a message of hope. And that hope is if you take refuge in Christ, if you trust in him, if you cling in him to him, if you run to him, he will accept you. This last line is the message of Christ's sweet salvation. It's the message of hope. Again, our savior took that wrath upon himself so that you would never ever have to experience it. No one has to experience it if they would but turn to Jesus Christ and place their trust in Him. You know, if you think about it on the cross, at the very moment that He was nailed onto that cross and that pole was slammed down into the ground and He felt the pain from His wrists being pierced, what did He cry out in that moment? Curse you all and die! Is that what he said? (laughs) He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now's the time to take refuge in him. Now's the time to fall upon his mercy. Now's the time to be thankful for such a gracious king. Now's the time to honor and adore him. He is returning one day. He will fulfill Psalm 2. That will not be the time to take refuge in him. It will be too late then. You know, and as I was studying the psalm as I read it, the picture hit me over and over again. Do you, do you remember the woman in Luke 7? She entered the household of the Pharisees. All these judgmental, self-righteous Pharisees looking at her in judgment. She goes in there. She doesn't care about all that. She flings herself at the feet of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what she did? Let me read it to you. Luke 7. It says, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. There she was, kissing the sun. The Pharisees made no such gesture to Jesus. They didn't kiss his feet. In fact, they didn't even give him a polite welcome. They didn't grant him the honor that he deserved, but that woman did. Oh, what an example to us. Where is your heart this morning? Are you the Pharisee or the woman? Kiss the Son, honor him. He is so worthy. He is so worthy. He is not a tame lion, but He is good. Let me close with this. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, if he were here this morning, methinks I would kiss those feet again and again. And if any should inquire the reason, I would answer, Love I much? I've been forgiven much. I'm a miracle of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are a miracle of grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so kind, that you are so merciful, that even though we deserve your wrath, we deserve to be smashed like earthenware for rebelling against a kind and holy and just and good God. And yet you offer us forgiveness, you offer us amnesty. You declare to us you will adopt us as your children. What rich, rich blessings, far beyond what we can imagine. Or we are so thankful that you are patient, that you wish for none to perish, that you, Lord, take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and that you continually call out and offer yourself and offer to give water so that we would never thirst again, to give bread that we would never need to hunger again. And that is your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that He is King. His name, amen.